Welcome to Citizen Podcast. This is Carrie Kelly. Today we're talking about righteous anger and indignation. Our guest is writer and activist Soraya Chamali, who wrote a book called Rage Becomes Her, which claims that women's expressions of anger are vital to their own health, freedom, and well-being. Despite the fact that we women have plenty of things to be mad about, unequal pay, unchecked sexual harassment and abuse, just to name a few, anger is still considered a taboo emotion around the world. We're called emotional, hysterical, irrational. And yet Chamali argues that anger holds information that is essential to our liberation. This is not a self-help book for anger management, rather an in-depth investigation into the perils and possibilities of anger and what's possible when we unleash our sacred rage on the world. Take a listen. Saraya Chamali, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me today. So I would love to begin by simply hearing about your own personal journey of finding your voice and, and tapping into the anger that you write about in your book, Rage Becomes Her. Uh, sure. I um, It's funny, someone asked me the other day when I first when I had like my first feminist thought, and <laughs> I honestly can't remember when that was. I was really young um, when I had a sense of um, double standards related to race and gender, and I, I don't really remember not having that sense and thinking about it or responding to it. Um, but I think that for me to actually acknowledge the amount of anger I felt about these issues uh, took my whole life, really, because I was definitely in the category of people, overwhelmingly women, who are um, who learn to set their anger aside, to ignore it or sublimate it or diverted into other other emotions or behaviors. And so that's not really sustainable because, in fact, it's very unhealthy for most people and it's extremely frustrating. I mean, your anger really, um, as Audre Lorde said, it, it's a source, it's knowledge. It, it, it's based on what you know of the world and what you think has to change. And so it took me, I think, a lifetime of activism and writing and living um, until I sat up and thought, you know, if someone asked me, I'll say I'm not angry, but why do I do that? Because actually what people kept telling me resonated with them in my writing that I was not really conscious of was my anger. And so I had to unlearn childhood socialization and life lessons. And I, and I think that all of us understand what it feels like to be penalized for expressing anger, mm -hmm. uh, which for many people is expressing need, right? What, what people are saying when they're angry is that they have a need and they're asking their society, whether that's family or their workplace or their spouse to pay attention to that need. Yeah, it's funny. I, um, while I was reading your book and while I was preparing for this conversation, I was, I was trying to think back to when I began to allow myself to like give into anger, like, mm -hmm. and be openly publicly, um, 
righteously angry because I um, I really appreciate that you brought up socialization because I I actually grew up a good girl um, right. and was extre- like totally indoctrinated in right in perfectionist yep. culture yep. Um, and in performance culture and and I did that for I want to say I did that for. 20 something years. Yeah. And I wish I was also trying to like pinpoint like when, when did I start to feel dissonance around that? Um, and I do think you're right. I think there, I think something happened where I started to really tap into some like righteous indignation mm-hmm. around the way that I felt moving through the world as an adult and how I wasn't treated equally. And the way I started to see more clearly, like the injustices that were all around me. And that's, that's what sort of unleashed my anger, but I, I literally can't pinpoint it because it feels like it was just a gradual unraveling. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I think people come to it at different stages. Some people never come to it. Um, I've spoken to so many, so many women in the last year since I published the book about this topic. And there are some women who have written to me that are in their 70s, even their 80s, who say, you know, I've lived my whole life without ever saying the words, I am angry even though I know how angry I am, I, I cannot bring myself to say the words I'm angry, which is quite Mm. amazing. I love what you just said around how, um, anger is knowledge and anger is another way of expressing a need. And, and one of the things I found fascinating about your book is that it, it talks about both like the possibility of anger, which I'm hearing you say, but also the perils of anger. Right. Um, and we've been seeing, I think, the possibility made manifest, especially over the last three years, right, in mm-hmm. the way in which women have been resisting the era of Trump. Um, but you also talk in your book about the risks of associating, um, associated with like women expressing their anger. And, I mean, I and think, how yeah, like weighty that is. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, we understand what the risks are because they're real. There are penalties for expressing anger. And that's not just true of, of women, obviously. I mean, any subaltern class of people, people who have less power in the society, people who have less cultural capital resources, right. um, to express anger incurs a lot of danger often, you know, I mean, if you're a black man, and you express anger, and I write about this, it's much more likely that you'll be criminalized for that, uh, to be seen as an overwhelming danger in the society. If you're a black woman, your anger is definitely seen as a threat. And in fact, the stereotype of the angry black woman doesn't even require black women to act. I mean, basically, they're just, this is just sort of assumed about them. um, Just because of these stereotypes and biases and, and racism. And so there are different categories or different ways that we dismiss anger throughout our lives. So in a little girl, it might start off as something that's cute. People will film her temper tantrum and, you know, want it to turn into a really cute viral video, but that's really a form of mockery of her anger, right? It's not really respectful of her anger. And then as we get older, we're hormonal teens or, we're high maintenance bitches, and then we're old nags. And so those are sort of age related stages. Um, And then again, you get all of the race and ethnicity kind of aspects. So if you're uh, maybe of Hispanic descent, you see a lot of descriptions of um, hot, spicy Latino tempers, you know, like some kind of food consumable or um, women of Asian descent are often called sad, uh, 
instead of angry. Girls in general are, are attributed, sadness is attributed to girls when they're angry much more often than to boys. And um, conversely, boys who are sad are, are called angry um, because people have a hard time de-sexing those emotions, de-gendering, right. de-gendering those emotions. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that the prevalent theme is, is that women, all women understand that they risk being called crazy, irrational, incompetent. Um, and we know that that's actually true. We know that for women politicians, for example, or women managers, their anger doesn't increase their loyalty or leadership the way it does a man. It decreases it. So the penalties, I think, are real. Yeah, and I really like that you brought social location into it um, and, and how like how the risks that we take are relative, right, to our location and to, and, and to like all of our intersectional identities. Right. And it makes me, my, it makes me think about allyship, right? And, and, um, and because not all women are having the same experience, right, mm -hmm. of right. moving through the world um, based on their race or based on, um, you know, their gender choice and so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm just thinking about like, does that call women with more proximity to power, women with more proximity to privilege, to, to, to take more risk and, and it, not more risk because it's less risk, but you know what I mean? Like to actually take more leaps because they have less to lose. Well, I think that that's true. And I think that's also true of men, you know, I mean, we, we sort of think about women helping other women. Um, but in fact, that's that also sort of fits into the fundamental issue, which is a sex segregation, right? Like we need women with more privilege to use that privilege more effectively on behalf of those without it. But we also need men to do that, right? That's like right. women just don't have enough power. They don't have enough resources. They don't have money in society the same way. And so um, I would just alter what you said a little bit by saying, you know, I, I am, I always resist the, the segregation in that way, because in fact, we need men to be allies and we need to hold them accountable for doing the right thing. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about men. Okay. <laughs> your, t your Ted talk is called who is allowed to get angry. Um, and, and really speaks beautifully of, of the double standard, right. Around, uh, anger between men and women. Mm -hmm. Obviously we're speaking in binaries here for the purpose of sort of creating yes. that opposition, but but I'm thinking specifically about the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford right, and Brett Kavanaugh, right, mm -hmm. where she was gracious, respectful, smart, and he was hostile and disrespectful, uncooperative, like very bullying. I remember his exchange with um, Senator Klobuchar. Right. And yet that behavior for men is celebrated, right? It almost strengthens their position in the eyes of, of many. I think it's called like, uh, is it called empathy? Like well, the that's, way. Right. That's what Kate, Kate Mann calls it empathy. That's a little different. I think that's really the excessive sympathy towards men. Got um, it. I would say that what happened in the that exchange in during the hearings for his confirmation was a little bit different. There was sympathy, but in fact, what we saw so openly was the ways in which anger in a man confirms traditional norms because people expect a man to be angry. They expect him to defend his honor. They are comfortable with his asserting power and authority with an angry expression, which is all, he did all of that, right? And so because it confirmed beliefs, support for him actually went up. 
But when a woman does it, it transgresses, right? It, it actually pulls the rug out from under our beliefs. It makes people very uncomfortable. And so she actually didn't do that. If anybody in that courtroom had the right to be enraged, it was it was her. Totally. But as you said, she re- retained her composure. She was not only um, calm, she was deferential, right? And so I think that, that that distinction is really important because she had to really walk that fine line of not only being a witness to her own life, being an expert in the topic, right? She was both of those things and also navigating the cross currents of gender expectations while she did those two things. Um, And that's virtually impossible. You know, it's really impossible to do all of that. And then, oh, by the way, seem, which is what we saw happen with Hillary Clinton, authentic, right? If you have to constantly be catching yourself and calibrating yourself, and as you said, performing in order to minimize the risk and the backlash against you for acting in a way that people don't like, then you cannot seem that, uh, that authentic. Yeah. And it's making me think of like, now we have, um, an election with no female candidates left. Right. Um, and, and I, I would imagine, you know, very directly a result of that kind of double standard of the way in which these women were treated by the press um, or the way in which people held a narrative of electability over their heads that they don't hold over other people. You know, do you, do you think we're chipping away <laughs> at the ability um, for women candidates, women in leadership, um, women decision makers, women representatives to transcend that culture? I think in some places we are. I think that very clearly after Trump's election, um, people, particularly uh, white people, particularly white women, had a shock, right? I mean, a real shock to the system that this could happen. And that activated people to become engaged in new and different ways. And so we saw in the midterm elections on the Democratic side, of course, a surge in electing a diverse group of people, people who were overtly angry about what was happening and used that anger, transgender women, um, cisgendered women, uh, candidates all along sort of any kind of spectrum you would look at, they really seized that moment and were able to do that. But I would say that that's really happening in half of the culture, in half of the country, Because in the conservative half, which is significant and not necessarily, I mean, it's aging, but it may not be shrinking the same way that that might imply, right? There's a very strong conservative and neo-traditional movement in the country, especially among millennials. Millennials are very neo-traditional. But anyway, that I think is not necessarily happening. So we see fewer and fewer women running as Republicans, of course and getting uh, into office. And if you just looked at the GOP for women's representation, we would rank in the world about 134th alongside hybrid authoritarian regimes like Mali. You know, the, we're, we're just, we're, it's just absurd when you consider how few women, I mean, Trump managed to pull together a COVID task force that had no women on it at all when it started. 
you know, and that's not seen as a failure of governance that it is. Yeah. So, and now I believe, um, correct me if I'm wrong, we rank across, um, the, across parties, we rank 79th in the world for women representation in political leadership. Is that the right? I think that is. It changes. Yeah. It's sort of, it's been swinging between 79th and like 95th for a few years. And it's almost entirely due. It is entirely due to women on the left. Because during, right. During that time, conservatives have been falling off from both electoral elected positions and leadership positions. And, and to your point, you know, I think we're seeing the cost of of that right now of of white of an all white male predominantly task force um, and government um, the whitest and, and government male-est res- since the eighties right that's right responding to a, a life threatening pandemic that is the coronavirus I'm wondering like what what would it look like do you think if we did in fact have a a woman in the White House responding to this pandemic right now like how would it look different. Well, I mean, I think that depends on the woman, right? You could have a Margaret Thatcher in the White House, and it That's might not right. look different. Um, That's right. I saw something on Twitter the other day when when everybody was screaming about having a woman vice president, and someone said Sarah Palin was a woman. Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends. I mean, if you look at Norway, where the prime minister just held a press conference just for children, right? I mean, that is remarkable. This is a person who understands what it means to care, what it means to care for children, what it means to be a parent, um, what it means to engage children, all of them, boys and girls, in the political life of the culture at just a very scary time. And that's radically different from what's happening here, right? We, we don't have that here. I think the main issue is that this level of homogeneity is dangerous. It's dangerous because we know that groups of people who lack so profoundly in diversity are outlier risk assessors. They just don't see dangers that will reduce their status. They don't see dangers that um, require solutions that will threaten their identities or their um, power. And that's the situation we're in right now. You know, and, and so understanding the relationship between inclusivity and diversity not as a matter of some kind of quota system or numerical representation or to make people feel better is really important from the perspective of understanding governance and intelligence and systematic ways of assessing threat and risk and then addressing them. Well, and I really appreciate you bringing kind of a power analysis into it because it does, because we know historically, right, that power systems of power, people in power have adapted um, quite resiliently, right, <laughs> to maintaining their power and to holding on to power and to reorganizing society so that they could stay in the majority um, of, of, you know, of domination and, um, and supremacy. And, and I think in some ways, we're, we're even seeing that now, right? Like, what are the, what are the subtle ways in which we continue to reorganize ourselves so that we can maintain the status quo? That's right. And, and I think that the, you know, there, I think there's that, that's just, you know, just the sheer fact of power and seeing it exercised abusively with impunity. Right. But I also think that there is something else going on. You can see the relationship, for example, between different forms of denialism, right? You, you have the denial of science, the denial of the scientific method, 
the denial of failures of capitalism, the denial of people's equality. I mean, these 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 are different, but but they're densely interrelated. Um, and there is a cognitive mechanism. There is a a, a well understood identity protective cognition that goes into that denial. And unfortunately for us, that identity protective cognition, which has been implicated in science denial and culture, it's called cultural cognition, um, lots of different forms of perception that are affected by identity. Um, it's really dangerous right now. It's really dangerous to have people in charge who are calling the pandemics a hoax or minimizing what's happening or just refusing to understand fundamentally how many people are going to die. Right. Is that cultural cognition um, around denial? And I remember in, in your TED talk, you talked about discomfort. Um, you mm-hmm. said we should make people comfortable with the discomfort they feel when a woman says no apologetically. Mm-hmm. Um, unapologetically <laughs> unapologetically rather <laughs> don't don't say you're sorry unapologetically but I'm wondering about I'm wondering about that right because I'm, I'm just thinking about you know what you're naming and the cognitive right. shift that's required the behavior shift that that's required for the culture shift that we need and that this moment is calling for because mm-hmm. it's not just about women changing their relationship with anger right that's I feel like what everybody right. is asking women to do it's about right. men and everyone else building up capacity to hear and allow for everyone's anger as valid right and to understand why they themselves might erect obstacles to understanding why women's experiences are what they are or why they're meaningful. I have a chapter in the book on denialism where I really try and focus on this. Um, If you take, for example, Me Too as a movement, right? So you had literally tens of millions of women saying, yes, I've been sexually harassed, street harassed, sexually assaulted, raped, um, harassed at work. And enough is enough, right? This is happening to us every day. It's inhibiting our ability to work, to live freely, to live safely, Uh, just an outpouring of testimonies. And yet in the United States, over 50% of men say sexism no longer exists. And um, they routinely underestimate the percentage of women that experience these things. So, you know, between 85 and 100% of women say that they've experienced everything I just listed. But when you ask men, the average the average number they believe is the case is 43%. So it's that's a very huge gap. And that gap in knowledge and experience and trust and belief is very meaningful when we have so few women in power, right? So we have roughly 20% of our Congress, for example, is women. Um, and we see that in, in virtually every corporate environment. So women's experiences are not shaping public life, public understanding, public policy, media coverage of these issues. Um, but why would men deny that? What, what What's in it for them? And a lot of it is in it for them, right? There's just the sheer fact that people don't want to give up power or privilege or status, even if they don't feel like they have power, privilege, and status, right? They, they're like, well, wait a minute. I also am struggling. I'm, you know, I can't earn a living. I can't do my job. Um, I can't support my family. All of that is true, but none of that is true on the basis that they are men. And I think that's the, 
that's the issue. And so when women say what they're saying, it's a specific threat. And the threat to men has a lot to do with the identities born of masculinity. So if you're taught to provide and protect and women are saying, you're not protecting me, look at how fucked up this is. And oh, by the way, I want to provide for myself. I want this to stop so I can work and make a fair wage. Where does that leave men whose identities are grounded in those expectations? And I think that leads to denial. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness, and we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But making a good podcast takes a village, and so we're building one on Patreon. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live meetups with guests, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. You can join us at patreon.com slash c-t-z-n-w-e-l-l. So how, how do we intervene with men? Um, if in fact, right, there's all, the, so much cultural cognition, denial, um, a failure to see their own complicity, right, in, in the system. Um, I'm thinking about like we have all of these men's groups popping up around the country to talk about men's feelings and to try and tackle toxic masculinity. Like are those, is that the answer? Do you have, like, do you have any ideas around like wh- what does the intervention look like? So I, I think it has to just be kind of pervasive and multi-pronged, right? It, it has to be, it has to be first of all, I think, getting away from the idea that gender means women, right? We we I think it's very easy culturally for people to just assume that those two things mean the same thing, but it's in like fact, race means black, right? And so I, I remember I was at a symposium a few months ago and. Um, it was about authoritarianism, and there was a, a a man who'd written a book, a recent book about authoritarianism and culture, and he did a whole discussion and um, never mentioned um, anti-woman, anti-feminist movements as very central to both authoritarianism and anti-authoritarianism. And so I said, you know, can you address, I, I said, can you please address those movements Um, because women in situations of extreme inequality are the first to embrace authoritarian leaders and beliefs, and women who are feminists are the first to confront those authoritarian movements. And he said, oh, well, I have a chapter on gender in my book. (laughs) And I wanted to respond, actually, all the chapters in your book are about gender, right? You're about gender. Like, you're about gender, this is about gender, our exchange is about gender. And, you know, you clearly are thinking, well, 
I checked off the woman box and I'm good, you know? And so I think making everyone aware that gender isn't about being a woman, but about masculinity and femininity is important. And the second thing is, I think a lot of women protect men from their experiences for a variety of reasons. And also because we're taught to care for other people and not make them uncomfortable, um, we do that. We try not to make people uncomfortable. But in fact, these problems make people uncomfortable, and we have to be prepared to do that. And then third, people have to be accountable. Like, there have to be consequences, and that's really hard, right? Like, especially, in, I think, in heterosexual relationships that that are gender factories. Heterosexual relationships, by default, create a, a very traditional mode of interacting for many people because it enables them to leverage institutions that count on that model more effectively and it's much more efficient. So to disrupt that is inefficient, more expensive, puts a strain on people. That's hard. That's really hard to do. You know, you're also making me think about um, discomfort and denial as it relates to uh, to polite politics and to the call for like decency and civility. Oh, and civility, yes. I'm just right. So like not even that in person. even in the Trump era, which is like, you know, I think as extreme as it gets, right, amidst like so much disinformation and lies and ab- abuse and bullying, there's this deep, you know, and I think it's like a majority of Americans, right, want more civility and um, and decency in American politics. Um, mm-hmm. But I wonder, like, what is the cost of that? I mean, I think that people who call for civility, well, I don't know how to put this. I don't really think there's a way. I mean, yes, sure, it's always great to be civil. But at some point, you have to realize that your civility is part of the problem and not actually um, a path to solving the problem. And that's hard for some people. I mean, should you entertain civilly a person who's advocating for your oppression and for violence to be done against you? Probably not, you know? And what does it mean not to be civil? It doesn't mean you have to, like, punch someone, but it also doesn't mean you have to be polite or entertain what they're saying, you know? Right, right. It makes me think about like how, I mean, this is also, I think, part of the muscle building that you're, you're talking about around discomfort. Like mm-hmm. we need to build a muscle around conflict. Like we need to, That's to right. learn how to, right? Like we need to learn how to, um, everyone talks about having conversations across the aisle, but like, I, I actually think it's like, I need to have conversations with my neighbor. Like I don't need to reach so far across the aisle to no. talk about these issues because they're very proximal to my family and to my friends and to my coworkers. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And and some people, you know, the minute you encounter the person who's like, I, I'm just going to be devil's advocate, you know, it's a waste of your time. You know, you have to know when to walk away too. There's no convincing some people. So why spend your time and energy engaging in what for the other person is not an existential threat, but a game, you know, and there are a lot of those people running around who just think that, this is a game and not understanding what that means in terms of their own place or safety or status. 
Yeah. I mean, that's why I like ha- working with a power framework feels so right. essential right. to having these conversations or else we're all talking in different languages, literally. Yes. And it also, when you don't, when you take power out of the equation, it enables all of those extremely uh, misleading false equivalences in in arguments or discussions or in media. You know, the the, the tyranny of the false equivalence is more and more evident every day right? I mean, it just, it was bad in 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19. Now it's really bad. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's, it's sort of like we see the the growth and the, the movement and yet there's a whole lot of backslipping happening right? at the same time and rollbacks, right? It's like we're standing still. It makes me well, think of, yeah. um, you know, I spend a lot of time in like the spiritual and wellness world. I come from that space. And, mm-hmm. um, often, um, what I see happening in those spaces is replicating sort of what we're naming around like dominant culture, the narratives of dominant culture. Um, and I, I hear, I hear a lot of like nuance around anger, like, um, like people putting footnotes on anger, like, um, deciding which anger is appropriate, um, which isn't warning us when anger is too much. So right. I'm curious right. if you have like a definition of, ang- cause I feel like that's really harmful too, that there's all these, you know, um, guardrails around anger and, and it's just a reinforcement of power. Like people deciding what anger is appropriate and what anger isn't. I'm just curious if you have like a, a definition of anger, um, That is spacious enough to hold, you know, everyone's authentic feelings inside of it. Right. I mean, well, first of all, I, a big red flag to me is when people use that word appropriate, right? Because it's such a limiting word. It's such a scolding, especially for girls. It's just not, you know, to, to hear that's not appropriate. Um, I always tell girls, I taught my girls this. I said, the minute someone uses the word appropriate, take a big step back. And yeah. just, you know, understand where you're, where you are, because that implies a whole lot of things about norms that have never really served, that's uh, right, served us well. So, um, you know, it's very complicated, right? Anger encompasses oh, such a range of things. What I usually start with, though, is rage, because in fact, rage is a huge mismanagement of anger. By the time a person is exploding with rage, Lots of other things haven't happened that optimally should happen. So the feeling of anger, the feeling of wrongness, of unfairness, of, in, of injustice, I think everybody understands that. Threats to dignity, threats to safety. Um, it's a very visceral, emotional response that has helped humans survive. So the question is, when you have that feeling, whether it's mild and it's like, well, you know, it's really inconsequential. I, I, I left the store and I forgot my change and I'm angry because I, I didn't, you know, that that's, I needed that money. Um, that may, that may be one form of anger. Another form of anger though, may be, um, this person is about to punch me and, and I'm angry. I'm going to punch them back, right? That's the sort of physical anger that people may feel. But in either case, the response should be, what is my anger telling me? What, why am I feeling this way? And what step do I need to take next? Is it immediate or is it short-term? Is it long-term? You know, do I need to physically remove myself from this place right now? Or do I need to invest myself and my time and my effort and form a community? Those are really different equations. 
Um, but what you don't want to have happen is that the feelings are ignored and pushed down and suppressed or diverted because that will lead to ill health and mental distress and all kinds of bad relationships, lack of intimacy, poor parenting. You know, anger is, I think I wrote, it's like water. It always finds a way. And so if it, if it isn't addressed, it will eventually end up in a very destructive rage. Rage is not particularly productive and it's not particularly health, healthy, you know? But it's understandable is what I hear you saying too, right? That it is, especially for, for women who have had to, to deal with um, so much suppression of anger. Um, right. And I think you, you said it was like, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing your quote right now, but something around like anger has been severed from womanhood. Right? Didn't yes, you say from that? femininity. Why would we do that? Like, why would we take the signal emotion that is supposed to protect us from harm and indignity and threat and detach it from girls' sense of self? Why would we say, this is not your moral property? You don't have the right to this emotion. We're going to punish you for this emotion. Smile more. Use your nice voice. Don't say anything if it's not, you know, something positive. There are all of these excessive politeness demands put on on girls that that essentially say we don't we don't want any negative negativity from you you know we don't want to hear bad things from you um and so we end up detaching ourselves from our own sense of unfairness or need or injustice and prioritizing the needs of others to the degree that it's harmful one of the reasons i wrote the book was so that girls and women could reframe the issue in a way that didn't lead to self-harm or illness. What, what do you say to, um, to the mothers or the fathers, the parents of young girls, um, about how to allow for the full flourishing of their emotional development? Um, but I'm sure like there's, complexity around discipline and, you know, um, and, and cultural norm and so on and so forth. Like, how do you, how do you coach parents in this? You know, I, I think that parents have to go through a dual process. They, they have to, um, think about how they can free all children to experience their emotions and not be punished for those emotions and to cultivate what I call emotional competence how, how can you grow people who know themselves, can name and label their emotions, and then make sense of those emotions in a healthy way? That's, I, that's the ideal, right? Because we know that people who feel and acknowledge all of their emotions, both the positive and the negative, tend to be calmer, happier, more creative individuals. They have a, a, a more solid sense of themselves and, um, and are able to articulate their, their needs uh, in a healthy way. But while that's happening, parents also have to confront their own ways of expressing themselves, of modeling behavior, Mm -hmm. and of considering how their own dynamic with others might need to be revised, right? I mean, if you're an adult and you really did grow up in the United States in the 20th century, everything about your identity has been shaped by these ideas. You know, the first thing we do when a child is born 
is assign a sex to that child. And the minute that happens, we'd start treating that child differently. And so it's complicated if you're a parent because you're like, oh, did I just, did I just actually show my children a way of acting that I would never actually want them to learn? Mm-hmm. So it I takes feel like a this lot is of advice awareness. for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, it it, it requires consciousness raising. Yeah, like self radical self interrogation. Um, right. Even, and I think um, for those of us who believe we're on the right side of justice, I mean, even saying that feels absurd, but you know, I'm saying like, I I think everybody, right, needs to be in a constant process, a sustained process of radical self-interrogation, because to your point, like we're all embodying so many social conditions, so much indoctrination that You know, for me, I still find myself defaulting all the time, no matter how educated I get, how practiced I get, how informed, you know, um, I get how, you know, resistant I get. I still like when I'm not paying attention, I still default to being the good girl, to trying to be perfect, to trying to be nice, um, right, to to managing my anger, um, to not trying to be too aggressive. You know, like I find myself doing that shit all the time. Right. Um, and we have even to now. allow ourselves to do it. You know, it's hard because the vigilance is exhausting. And so I think it has to come with compassion for others and, and for ourselves. And so there's the awareness like, oh, now I'm aware. And frankly, I think what follows awareness is often a feeling of being overwhelmed or a feeling of almost grief because you're like, wow, this is a major, huge, profound problem. I can't fix this problem. Like we live in a fast fix culture, right? I can't fix this problem in a week. This is a life. I have to I have to do this for the rest of my life. And I think for some people that's okay because it's not that big a challenge. They really want to do it and you know, they understand that it's a matter of changing habits and um creating a new culture and that that can be creative and fun, but for other people they feel a loss. They feel a loss of tradition. They feel a loss of parts of their identity that they they maybe understand or problematic, but but that they they love, you know. Um, so it's complicated, and it's sort of complicated on every level. What is this? Is my my last question for mm-hmm. you, and and maybe it's the hardest one. But mm-hmm. what is um what is your vision for for this movement of I don't even know what to call it, right? Like I know we're in some phase of feminism, but it it feels more like a, a movement of righteous anger um, that's emerging. And I think it's emerging for women and men. Um, and even while it feels like the systems are <laughs> pushing back harder than ever, I also, I also do feel like, at, le- at least relationally and in my circles, like that things are shifting. We're having different conversations than we had many years ago. There's more nuance. We have more vocabulary. Do you have a vision for where where you hope this movement is in a couple years? You know, I think it's it sort of, it's tied to something that has been actually making me feel fairly optimistic. And that is that even though we're in a, in a moment of global backlash against the radical social change of the last half of the 20th century. Um, What's interesting to me is what I can only really call the subversive success of feminism, 
So if you think of the ways in which for Gen Y, for example, thinking in terms of spectrums instead of binary is completely the norm in a lot of places, right? Like kids are just fine with the notion of fluidity, of gender expression that is variable with sexuality that isn't rigid. Somehow that message made it through the culture and altered the way an entire generation is capable of thinking about issues. And that happened during a time of conservative backlash. It happened during a time when, for example, our government excessively invested in abstinence-only sex ed. It happened in a time of retrenchment of powerful conservative forces. And so my vision is that feminisms as a multiplicity of movements can focus on how transformative childhood socialization is and how we can better understand and think about that, you know? Yeah. It makes me think that the the subversive um, success of feminism is also like the water that you need. Yes. It will find its way. It will find its way. I feel like that's a perfect note to end on. Soraya, thank you so much for your wisdom and for your book and for your time. And I also think for your push, like thanks for pushing us oh. um, to, to transform, like to, tra- I feel like to, to channel and embrace our anger in a way that's actually going to make a difference. Well, thank you so much for thinking about this and for the work that you do and for having me on today. You got it. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to channel your anger and counter oppression everywhere you see it. And trust that our collective anger is powerful enough to make big change. You can buy Rage Becomes Her at ragebecomesher.com and follow Soraya on Twitter at schimali. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month, so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out. Zoom beyond soar, reach, feel heaven. Good love, satin sheets and mind edges. Freedom of expression, use tools in possession. Light years ahead of path.